0: This theme that we have on grace and how God has demonstrated that in our lives has proven to be pretty interesting based on the, what we've heard the previous weeks from Tom Leary and from John Barry in how God used uh, really distressing life moments in their lives to, uh, to deliver grace to them and what they learned from that. Mine, my story is a little bit different. Um, Mine was more of a discovery about grace and learning how to experience grace. So let me share this with you. It's a period of time in my life. It took place over the course of about a year. And it'll be a little difficult, not just because it's personal, but because I'm going to try to convey how I was feeling, the emotions that I felt and we all respond differently to different stimulus, different input. So you may not actually feel what I was feeling, but at least you'll understand what the influences were that were uh, causing me to feel that way. In the fall of 2008, I was working for Chevron Corporation as an instructional designer and a training project manager I've been working on developing and managing the training for this uh, very large IT project uh, for about a year. The project itself had been in existence for about three years. It was one of those big behemoth corporate projects um, that just seemed to kind of re-evolve and reinvent itself and continue on. It was large in that it would probably impact about 15,000 to 20,000 employees when it was all said and done. It had gone through a number of changes in terms of leadership, direction, scope. And at the point where we pick up this story, they had just reorganized again and had moved the training function over into a different area. So there was different leadership, different reporting structure. And that's when it, my job became began being much more difficult. Um, it made the work more cumbersome. It made things less efficient in terms of communication among team members. Now, in all the jobs I'd had in the past, I'd always felt very confident in my abilities to meet or exceed the expectations that my managers had or the, the customers that I was developing products for had in me. And uh, now, I was, I was struggling, struggling to meet deadlines for deliverables. And in some cases, instances, even the quality of my work was coming into question. And these were things that were very uncomfortable for me. It was about this time that I got a phone call from my brother. And he had just received a call from my mom's friend to let him know that my mom was being admitted to the hospital for tests. Uh, Just to give you a little background, my mom was 72, lived alone in her home in northwest Arkansas. My dad had retired, retired, he had passed away. really retired. (laughs) He had passed away in 2001. And even though my brother lived four hours away, he was the closest. I was in California and another brother and sister in Florida. So in terms of being able to respond, Steve was the closest. So he was calling me to let me know that he was leaving and that he would drive to Bentonville and give me a call from there and let me know what was going on. So unbeknownst to my brother and I, the events that led to her being in the hospital actually began about a month earlier than that. My mom had been delivering meals on wheels for years with her friend T.G. Carroll. T.G.'s a lady. It's Thelma Gale. She just doesn't like Thelma Gale, so she calls herself T.G. A couple of times while driving, my mom appeared confused, almost lost. And this is in a small town that she'd lived in for over 40 years. So without any other... Symptoms, they just both kind of laughed it off like it was a senior moment and didn't pursue anything. But a couple of days prior to this, she couldn't figure out how to get her seatbelt off. It just, the cognitive abilities just weren't working. That's when they decided there's something really wrong here. I need to have some tests run. So by the time that TJ had called my brother, they'd already run some tests. Um, they had discovered that she had three brain tumors. That's what was causing the, uh, the cognitive problems. Um, and the further testing that they wanted to do was because uh, brain cancer is very, it's very rare that it's the primary source of a cancer. So they wanted to look, they felt pretty confident that if they looked somewhere else in her body that they would find other cancer that would really be the primary source. And they did. They found tumors in, in her lungs. And... Uh, the lung cancer had spread, had metastasized into, the, uh, in, into her brain. So this is all, <laughs> it's a lot for her to take in in a very short period of time. It, it didn't, usually, you, or not usually I guess, but sometimes you get symptoms that occur over a period of time and it gives you a chance to kind of prepare yourself for it. But seemingly within a matter of a week, she went from feeling pretty much okay, normal, healthy, to where the doctors had just informed her that she had, Stage four cancer. So from that point, my focus became doing whatever I could do to support her. Being in California made everything difficult because I was having to do everything remotely. But um, her friend T.G. was really a godsend. She was was always there to help, just over and beyond what you could ever imagine. My mom got set up with an oncologist, and they, they looked at uh, her situation, assessed her health, and decided that they were going to uh, do a course of radiation treatment on the, uh, on the brain tumors to try to stop the growth there and, and shrink them to the point where they could um, then do some chemotherapy on the, the lung cancer. So they began doing that. Um, we got her set up with in-home health care. Um, from the start, we decided, actually, she she decided that she wanted to stay home. As much as, if at all possible, just stay home. She didn't want to get into some kind of a, a hospital or a, a, a care facility. So initially, we had her set up with just an in-home care or day, daytime. But Pretty quickly, from the uh, from the from the effects of the, the the cancer and the just the toll that the radiation treatments were taking on her uh, her her physical abilities really declined pretty rapidly. <clears throat> so we had to pretty quickly, within about a, ma- a matter of a month, increase that, that daytime care to full time twenty four hour care. And just a, a a quick story about how God works. TG and I were looking. Uh, her locally and me doing web searches about how to find a uh, uh, an elder care service. And she came up with one that she found from some networking. Um, she contacted them, made arrangements to meet with the director and just kind of screen them. And she found out that the person who ran the service was... The music minister, the, the wife of the music minister of the church that my mom attended, so it all kind of came together. Worked out wonderfully. Now her doctors, being pragmatic, they weren't uh, promising anyth- anything um, in terms of what 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 benefit the uh, the radiation and the chemotherapy might bring. So. She was preparing for the worst, and I was trying to be positive, but at the same time figured I might want to spend as much time with her as I can. So I, I had a lot of vacation time at that point. I hadn't used hardly any, and I had a great work schedule where I could get like, every other Friday off. So I could combine that with uh, take a vacation day on Thursday and Monday and get a nice long stretch so that I could fly out to Arkansas and spend time with her and help out with whatever I needed and just visit and spend time. So I began doing that about every five or six weeks. Take those trips to Arkansas. The radiation helped a little bit on the um, on the brain tumors. It stopped the growth, shrunk them to the point where they felt like they could now uh, focus on the on the lung cancer with the chemotherapy. But her her physical strength had really deteriorated, and they needed to take a break from the radiation, let her build up her strength to the point where she could uh, take on the uh, the impact that chemotherapy has on your body. It's pretty pretty strong medication. So they got her to that point. They began the chemotherapy. Um, this was, I don't know, June or so of the year now. And by late summer, it became pretty apparent that the chemotherapy wasn't working. In fact, the uh, the tumors in her brain had started growing again. So <clears throat> she met with the doctors, and they decided that they would stop all treatment. So. That was kind of a hard thing for her to, to accept, because at that point, she, just, she knew it was just really just a matter it was in the Lord's hands at that point. Um, the cancer was going to continue to spread until it just ran its course and, and, and it took its toll, which would be her life. So, well, all this is going on. <laughs> the job situation didn't get any better. In fact, you know, it, w- w- what was difficult at first became increasingly difficult because now, now my mind is is not focused on on, on work. I'm, I got the problems that I'm dealing with at home, or with, I mean, not at home, but at Arkansas with my mom, uh, traveling back and forth, spending less time at at work, and uh, Couple that with being a parent. Sometimes uh, the children that you have don't make really good decisions. And sometimes those decisions have um, very big impacts, not just ones that cause parental concern, but ones that have far-reaching influence. So without going into any detail, there was the job and those other influences as well. So at one point, actually it was the, It was a a trip in October that I had taken out to Arkansas. I was sitting in the the airport waiting to catch my return flight back here to Chevron, uh, back here to Chevron, back here to California. Yeah. I got a call from my manager, and she was informing me that she had just received a call from the project manager, and they let her know that they no longer needed my services. I, I didn't get fired from Chevron, but I got removed from the project. They decided they were going to take the training in a different direction, and that was sort of a nice way of saying what I was developing wasn't meeting their needs. And that was hard to that was that was hard to accept. Um, just speaking as a guy, a, a lot of our a lot of our the value that we place in ourselves, our self worth comes from our jobs and doing them well. And when someone tells you that you're not doing your job well, it, it, it's hard to handle. <laughs> so that was, that was hard. I, I still had a job. I went back to a job. It was just something different. Um, and a couple weeks into that, I got a phone call from TG saying, you need to come now. It looks like your mom might not make it through the night. So I called my brother. My brother, who lived in Oklahoma City at the beginning of this, had moved to Alaska. So I, I had to let him know, because um, it's, much, it's much easier to get a flight from California to Arkansas than it is from Kotzebue, Alaska. So he had to make arrangements for that. I called my brother and sister in Florida, let them know. And then I, I traveled uh, to Arkansas, and thankfully, God was gracious, when I got there, she was still lucid enough where she recognized who I was. We could talk. She was kind of in and out of being alert. Um, but she did know who I was, and we had a conversation. And so that was, that was satisfying. But that was, that was the last, from, from that time until she passed away, that was the last time she recognized anybody. So uh, I felt a little sorry for my brother because he, he arrived the next day, and you know, they spent time with her, and she was alert, but you could just see that there was, wasn't that recognition. Um, My uh, brother arrived arrived from Florida the following Monday. He and I met with the funeral director, the the director of the funeral home. We met with uh, my mom's pastor to arrange the memorial service. And then I just kind of busied myself meeting with friends as they came to visit her, um, building a video to play at her memorial, uh, writing the obituary and uh, the biography that would accompany the, the memorial And trying to collect my thoughts and put something down on paper so that I could speak in a somewhat coherent manner at her service as well. Um, I arrived on a Friday. She lived on for another week. And then on November 6th, she went to be with the Lord. I remember it it was late in the evening. And since we had hospice, the hospice nurse had to come out. And she took care of it the uh, All the paperwork and all that kind of things, but I had to, we had to call the, the funeral home and I don't know how it is in the rest of the country, but in Bentonville if you if somebody dies at home, you have to call the police and have them come out and certify that it wasn't anything other, other than just a natural death so by the time the the hospice and the funeral director and the police left, it was quite late in the evening uh, even so I was, I was still up pretty early the next day, and uh, as I said we were we were at my mom's home. There were other people that were there, uh, but nobody else was awake yet. I was, <coughs> I was brewing some coffee, and I remember I uh, had a sliding glass door that looked out onto a patio, and there was a big field beyond the patio. And I was just standing there, just kind of staring absently out into that field, not really thinking about anything, and just as clear as could be. Now, this, don't get me wrong. <laughs> God didn't speak audibly to me. There was no burning bush or anything. But just as clearly as if he was speaking to me, I, I saw in my head, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, those words, those, are, those words have brought comfort to people for thousands of years. So, as I stood there looking out of that field, I just had to shake my head and think, why is that not comforting me? The, why am I not experiencing that grace? So that's that's what led me on this on this journey on this discovery about what grace is. So I had to ask myself some just basic questions: What is grace? How do you experience grace? How do you know when you when when you feel grace in your life? These are important questions. Questions that maybe you've asked yourself. I hope, I hope you have. And if you haven't, maybe now's a good time to start right now. When you hear things like, you're saved by grace, and my grace is sufficient for you, the importance and the weight that those things carry should prompt you to, to pursue the, the same path that I went on and just discover what grace is, so we're going to do that this morning. The first question that we have to answer is what is grace? According to one writer, grace is the most misunderstood concept in Christianity. So if you don't have a really firm grasp on what grace is, well you are in the midst of a lot of company. So don't feel alone. And it could very well be true because of the way that it, because of the word that the the uh, biblical translators used. The Bible wasn't written in English, obviously. It was written in a combination of languages, one of which was Greek. And so, when they came across this Greek word "charis," they said, "Well, the right word to to use for that is grace." Well, if you look up grace in a dictionary, lexicon, words online, whatever you use, you're going to see a number of um, definitions, and usually they're they're listed in terms of what's most frequently used. And then the, the, the definitions that are further down the line are the ones that are less frequently used. So when you read the definition of grace, the first one is elegant or beauty of form, manner, motion, action. That's what's most commonly used. That, that, that's the word. When, when grace is used, that's, that's the idea that it most commonly conveys. Well, that's not the biblical idea of grace. The next one down is pleasing or attractive It's still not the right quality. You have to come down to the third, and now you hear favor or goodwill. Now we're getting more in line with what the real biblical concept of grace is. It's God's favor. You're saved by grace. Insert the word favor in there. God favored you, and that's why you're saved. When he gives you grace, he's giving you his favor. He's giving you his goodwill. And then they even confuse things further. At the very bottom of the list of definitions for grace is mercy. And mercy and grace are not the same thing in the Bible. In fact, they're like two sides of the same coin. Grace is defined as receiving something good that you do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving something bad that you do deserve. So they're in no way the same thing. They're related it can be those two sides of the same coin, but when you put them in the same definition, you just blow it out. So it's not surprising that people have a, a tough concept of understanding grace. The first thing to keep in mind when trying to understand the concept of grace is that it's an essential characteristic of who God is in his very nature. When we read a verse like uh, John 1:17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Sometimes people see the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as different. The God of the Old Testament brought the law, and the law was hard and cold. And then the God of the New Testament brought grace. And that, it's, that's a, it's a dangerous picture to paint in your mind, because God is the same from end to end. Nehemiah 9.17 says, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Ephesians 1.5-6 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God is a gracious God from end to end. It's who he is. You can't take grace out of God and still have God be God. He is a gracious God. We see these same characteristics ascribed to Jesus in John 1.14. says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see that grace is an essential part of who God is. Now, next, in order to better understand grace, let's look at how it's manifested. Now here is where our Catholic brothers and sisters can actually help us. Because they break, him down into, they break grace down into two, two categories. And they teach it in their catechism. They refer to the first as sanctifying grace and the other as actual grace. I don't think that's a very good term unless they have some reason for using it. I don't see. I think sanctifying grace is just as actual or actualized as what they call actual grace. Think of realized grace. Maybe that helps better. Um, They do get a lot of things wrong with how grace is manifested, but I like the, the fact that they put it in those two categories. I think it's helpful for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation, sanctifying grace, is by grace, and it's the sole work of God alone. There's nothing that we do. It's not as a result of works. It's a one-time event. It doesn't happen over and over again. Now, you contrast that with what I referred to as realized grace. You read uh, Romans 1.7. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you read that, they're expressing grace to you. It's not a one-time event. Hebrews 13.9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. You need strength when you're weak, and grace gives you that strength. It's an ebb and flow. Second Timothy two one says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In First Peter five twelve. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And finally, at Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you can see that there's there's this aspect of grace that God gives us on his own, no merit of ours, no works of ours, it's sanctifying grace, it's salvation. And then there's this other aspect of grace that's delivered according to the need. When we need mercy, that grace is delivered. When we need strength, that grace is delivered. So now that we have an understanding of what grace is, how do we experience it? God brings the grace of salvation to us, but how do we reach out and draw upon and experience that other form of grace? Well, theologians have referred to what they call the means of grace, and it's pretty simple, and, and they, 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 they give it a very apt name because what they're describing is the means by which God delivers or dispenses that grace. Different people have proposed different lists, different, different means. I'm going to simplify it and just offer you six. Six means of grace. They're not listed in, in, in any priority. The first we've already talked about briefly, it's the gospel. The hearing of the gospel brings salvation and preaching the gospel is to be used by God as a means of grace. That's that sanctifying grace. Next Is baptism when you're baptized you're demonstrating that you're leaving your old life behind that you've died with Christ and you've been raised up in newness of life God uses that act as a means to impart grace to you but these baptisms are very public events it also imparts grace to the people who are witnessing that baptism for the person being baptized, it's a public expression of your allegiance to Christ. For those witnessing, it's a means of grace to them as well. I haven't witnessed a baptism for as long as I can remember where there hasn't been a spontaneous burst of applause as that person comes up out of the water. It's as though that grace is just welling up inside you and looking for some kind of release. Amen, hallelujah, praise God. Those are all appropriate, as is applause. And it's that, that delivery of grace to us. The Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's both a solemn and a celebratory time. We can't help but be humbled and saddened as we think about how God made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf in offering up his son to suffer the punishment that was rightfully due to us. But then the right response is to celebrate that salvation. God didn't save us to be eternally sad. We're to be joyful in recognition of his great love for us. This is where grace pours into our lives in the Lord's Supper. The next means, and probably one of the, one of the most available ones, is the Word of God, the Bible. Salvation comes to you once And you probably only experience one baptism, but you can come to the Word as often as you want. It's in the Word that we hear God talking to us. It's here that we're made wise by His counsel. We can meditate on the Word and worship Him. We can be taught from the Word and have our lives enriched. The preaching of the Word can exhort and encourage us to draw closer to God in our daily lives. The word is simply the most readily available expression of God's communication to us. A prayer is our time to talk with God. It's where we pour out our hearts, where we plead for the salvation of people that we love. This is where we praise God for all he's done and all he will do. We offer intercession and we thank him for how he cares for every aspect of our lives. Prayer can be done wherever and whenever we desire. It can be in our bedroom before we go to sleep. It can be in a living room when we meet with friends. It's often at dinner, at at the dinner table as we give thanks. We can pray on our commute to work. We can even pause and offer a quick prayer while at work. Prayer can be corporate like we've done this morning. It can be offered in small groups. But most often it's offered individually, in private. So pray without ceasing, It's your most accessible means of grace. Fellowship can sometimes be neglected and not regarded as the powerful means of grace that it is. This is where we get to be used by God to minister in the lives of the people that God brings us into contact with. Fellowship can take place here on a Sunday morning, but it's, it's difficult because we're here to worship and sometimes we get hurried and we're rushed on our way out and we can't really have a deep meaningful fellowship with somebody but we do have a really good opportunity here in this, in this church body it's called small groups they're designed for fellowship and for, for facilitating the flow of grace from God into the lives of the other people who fellowship with us we're just pipelines for grace in that respect so don't neglect this important means of grace in your life so now that we know what grace is and how God dispenses it, how do you experience it? And what's this thing about grace and weakness? I titled this sermon Grace in Weakness because you can know and understand everything we've looked at so far. If you were to leave right now with no other understanding of grace, you wouldn't be able to experience it. If you don't come to God in weakness... You will not experience grace. Behind me here, and if you want to look in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 10, 7 through 10 says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is Paul talking, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from, being, from becoming conceited. This thorn that Paul pleaded with God to remove was not some kind of superficial annoyance. It wasn't just a little minor distraction. He describes it as a messenger from Satan. Now, it helps to keep in mind who Paul was, because this is the guy who five times received 40 lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods, one time attacked by a mob who threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. Three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea for one and a half days, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He was often thirsty and hungry. He lived in the cold and in, in, in the exposure. So when Paul pleaded to God, three times to remove this thorn, you know this was, this was a major thing for Paul. And we don't know what this thorn was. And I think that's great that we don't know what it was. God did it intentionally. He didn't say exactly what this messenger of Satan was. Here's why I think he did. This is my own, my own impression. If he told us what it was, then some people could identify with it. And others would dismiss that as saying, oh, that's, that, that's for Paul. It has no bearing on me. We all have some thorn in our side, varying magnitudes. And this same message that was given to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, applies to all of us. No matter what that thorn is. The lesson we need to learn is the one that Paul learned. God's strength is manifested in our weakness. The dispensing of His grace in our lives is in direct proportion to the amount of strength we try to manifest on our own. Now, the most common, if subtle, way that we proclaim our own strength is by ignoring God. When we don't read the Word, we say, I'm so strong and so, so wise. And have such a deep well of experience to draw upon that I don't need to seek your counsel. When we don't pray, we say, I don't need to acknowledge you as the giver of all good things and the sustainer of my life. I'll take some credit for that myself. Declare your own weakness like Christ did when he was described in 2 Corinthians 13.4. If you flip the page in a lot of your Bibles, you'll see it right there. It says, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Now, there is no way that the all-powerful God of the universe could be described as weak unless he intentionally relinquished that control in submission to the Father and allowed us to kill him. Jesus is described as Full of grace. We read that in John 1.14. Now before you think that that, even, we've said that grace is, is an essential quality or attribute of God. And if you think that only Jesus can be f- described as full of grace, look at Acts 6.8. Right before Stephen, one of the first deacons in the Jerusalem church, right before he was martyred, he was described as... Full of grace. Well, how does someone like us get to that point where they can describe him as full of grace? That's where we need to be aiming, right? We want to get to that point. Most of us can't because we're too full of ourselves. If you want to be full of grace, you've got to be full of God. That's what that means of grace is all about. Going to the Word in prayer. Going to going to the Lord in prayer, reading the Word, fellowshipping, enjoying the Lord's Supper, taking those opportunities to either be baptized or celebrating those baptisms. Those are all means of grace, and they're inviting God into our life and dismissing ourselves out of it. That's us acknowledging our weakness and our dependence on God. And by doing that, He fills us up, and that's where we become We become full of grace. So I hope you're not like me. I hope you're not looking out onto that field in your backyard right now. Trying to figure out, why am I not experiencing grace? Why do I feel empty? Why is my tank empty? If it is, do what I discovered. And this is not one of these... Works kind of things. Oh, God, I read your Bible. You got to give me grace. It's not a works mentality, it's a dismissal of yourself and an invitation of God to fill you. And He will. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace. You offer it freely, unconditionally. We don't have to do anything for it. All we do is acknowledge you and our dependence on you. And as a result, you fill us and your grace just flows in. It's there when we need comfort. It's there when we need strength. And you even allow us to be a part of delivering that grace in fellowshipping with each other. Thank you so much for loving us so much that you would allow us to do that with you be part of that with you. I pray that everyone here is blessed by your grace in their lives. In your name we pray.